Yes, I'm in Washington State. Um, I'm visiting my mother-in-law. So cue your, cue your. Uh, I think you should leave jokes right now. <laughs> Shut up, Paul. You probably love your mother-in-law. I actually do. Oh my God, he made it. We're staying here two weeks to ensure that we don't have COVID. We already took negative tests, so we're good there. We're positive on our negativity about COVID-19, so that's well. That's great. I got I got my negative test on Saturday, so I'm oh, I'm, oh. I'm in yeah. So I'm doing <laughs> be- doing better than Elon Musk. Let me tell you, I yeah. took one test and it came up negative. So screw you, Elon. Okay. Think you're so fucking smart. That that's probably both. a pedo anyway. <laughs> Thank you for continuing. John, he won that case, by the way. Okay. Somehow, <laughs> somehow you can accuse anybody of being a pedophile. Actually, yeah, so go ahead. Continue to do that. Accuse him of, of um, having well, he has he has expensive lawyers, so everything works out for him. As, well, we do, too. I mean, we're both made of money. I mean, we've got friends. Uh, that's, in the- that's a good point. We're podcasters. Yeah. All right. Do you see how much millions are getting thrown around for podcasts? It's crazy. Spotify is going to be ringing our door any day now. Sure they will. Um, <laughs> wait, you've got twelve whole listeners. <laughs> oh, you got down to nine for that episode. Whatever. Um, it's, well, it's about the reach. We have the potential. That's true. We do have the reach. Everybody's talking about the films that we're talking about. Obviously, people are saying. People are talking. It's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Big man, strongest man I've ever seen. He came up to me with tears in his eyes. Said, um, "I love how you <laughs> talked about focus, focus." <laughs> simultaneously because you've paused in the middle and started to go into slow motion well i was just trying to slow down for you you know okay because i know you're always whenever i edit these episodes you're always half a second behind so i always have to like, well because you're the one that initiates it and obviously the yeah and i do it right you do it slow that's your fault <laughs> okay whenever we probably shouldn't be doing this anyway let's just use the tool that enables us to record together and mm. so when i does it sound no, as good and so there's no way good. that you can edit out when i talk over you so doesn't sound good doesn't sound good <laughs> no anyway i will continue to talk over you hello everybody welcome to the aspiring snobs yes this is, this is a movie podcast where we catch up on movies we haven't seen before i'm greg and we have a very special guest today he's my twin brother john he's been he's been a guest on every episode that we do on my podcast so <laughs> I mean, the fans keep begging. They keep saying, bring him back. He's hilarious. He's great. He's so handsome. And, you know, in an audio format, I think that's more important than ever. So, absolutely. We have, thankfully, we have faces for podcasts and minds yes. for uh, podcasts and uh, speaking <laughs> skills for podcasts. Everything. We're perfectly suited to this medium, I think. Yes. It's, it's, we were born at the right time. Everyone says they, they were born in the right time. Well, here we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I love that, that notion that like, uh, uh, I was born in the wrong time as if you have any control over it. And <laughs> somehow I'll, I'll invent a time machine <laughs> and get my parents to copulate later or something. I don't know. It's, it's nuts. All right. <laughs> Listen, everybody chill. Well, everybody I mean, there, cool there you go. Off. Wait, Greg, that's, that's it. There's your brilliant uh, time travel screenplay, which I know you've been trying, you've been aching to write. There you go. There's Absolutely. your, there's your plot point. I need to go back in time. So I'm born earlier. I need to set up my parents together. It's back to the future, but you know, just, just slightly different, different enough. Exactly. Exactly. Marty McFly realizes how great the year 2015 was. 
Mm-hmm. And so that enables him. To, he goes back in time. He makes sure that his parents don't hook up at the end of the sea dance and instead hook up, um, say, when they're 35. Um, maybe they've gone through some lamentable marriages or something prior to that. And There you go. Yeah. Well, actually, that's something that was always confused. Well, <laughs> there's, everyone's over-examined those movies. But he's the third child, isn't he? So it's like, yeah. No, I, I, I honestly can't remember. I can't remember two, that he had siblings. He has two siblings. Okay. He doesn't, because remember the picture? And his yes. siblings start fading away first. Okay. But then, you know, obviously the joke at the end is like, Marty, I like that name. I don't like it good enough for our first two children, but our <laughs> third child, absolutely. <laughs> and it it made such an impression that, yeah, we're going to name our third child after him. Um, exactly. And again, throws the whole determinism thing out the window because regardless of before he even set him up in the past, they still named him Marty. So it's it's utterly pointless to include it. No, whatever. John, it's it, it's a time loop. It's a causation loop, okay? So Ugh. technically, technically Kyle Reese gave birth to who was going to lead a resistance against the Terminator. So <laughs> I don't know if he knew he would go, like, hey, I'm John Connor in the future. I know I have to send Kyle Reese back in time or mm. something to, yeah, it's... In Alien versus Predator, the aliens have been coming for thousands of years. <laughs> but yet, in Alien Covenant, you know, it was David who created them. Explain that. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what we do. We nitpick. Um, we yes. poke holes. We deride every movie that you love. <laughs> this is where this is where film criticism is, people. And yes. again, we've got to live in the time that we're in. So this is what, this is what film criticism is. Yes. And we're going to do that again today um, mm. with a film that we definitely chose for the SEO. <laughs> <laughs> People are clamoring. They're like, yeah. oh, God, all the classics we need to revisit. Yes. This is the one. Mm-hmm. How could you not have seen this movie, guys? Black and white posters on everyone's walls. Absolutely. They loved it. They loved it. That's I, that's why we're talking about number 93 on the Criterion Collection. Or is it Spine 97? I can't remember. But Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's why the people have have them on the back of their cars as bumper stickers. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Love the Criterion Collection. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, because this week we're revisiting Black Narcissus. This is the story of a high endeavor that tried and tested a woman in the remote background of Asia. The story of a prince and a beggar maid, and of a nun who gave up her vows. Why should we want to keep you here against your will? Because you're all jealous of me. Especially you. The clash of strong personalities. I understood you wanted to see me. We want to talk to you on business. I suppose you want to talk to me on anything else. Like steam escaping. <laughs> yeah, so this one we've been putting off for a while because uh, this why? One... Why, John? Why? <laughs> well, again, it's like part of the the impetus of this podcast is that we revisit classics, mm-hmm. and a lot of our choices come from lists. And this one always came up on art house essentials. You know, art house films that you had to have seen. But it was Wh- which like lists, lo- John? Which other than lower on the list? Look, it was always lower on the lists. So <laughs> oh, really? Never... You know, obviously, you've got the Seventh Seal near the top. You've got, like, uh, you know, Stalker near the top. This one was always kind of, like, always kind of snuck in in the lower half. So. But at least those those movies had some cultural cachet. Um, mm. Apparently, this one has been... This is based on a book 
and it was made into a now classic British film, uh, made in 1947 by um, the filmmaking team of Powell, Powell and Pressburger. Mm, um, so classics. Yeah, so this is our you first. You put those names up with Spielberg <laughs> and Lucas. They, they've got an art house reputation, John. A, a lot of they've—they're the subject. A lot of their movies are the subject of essays in Ebert's Great Movies Collection. Okay. So yeah, so these guys do have a lot of cachet, and this story has been adapted a lot. But I, like filmmakers reference Stalker all the time. Filmmakers, um, you know, um, what was the first film you mentioned? I can't remember. Uh, seven Seal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People goof on the Seven Seal and like playing chess with death on the beach like a lot <laughs> but there there isn't a lot of um cultural cachet behind this one so i i guess and it shouldn't be mad because i'd say this one is worthy of revision and revisiting because it's it's probably one of the few classic films or those art house films you're talking about that does center around women that is true um is it a good depiction of women though uh maybe not <laughs> uh on if we're ranking this on the wokeness scale uh, i think it's pretty low down because it well, uh, centers around a, a bunch of, uh, of of nuns in a convent yeah i can't believe a movie made 70 years ago isn't woke <laughs> I'm just saying, like, look, I, I, this movie's kind of all over the place, all right? <laughs> it is a little bit. That would be my biggest complaint. You can definitely tell it's based on a book because the story kind of feels a little episodic and a little meandering. It's kind of all mm-hmm. playing on this, like, variations on a theme. And so it doesn't. the story doesn't really feel like it's building towards anything until it suddenly does. And it's like, oh, holy shit, when did this become Midsommar? What, what happened? <laughs> well, I'd say that's, that's when the movie's really cooking with gas. Because, as I said, it, this centers around women mm-hmm. in a convent. Uh, we've got uh, Sister Clauda, who's the, now going to be the youngest mother superior at a very difficult circumstance. Like, she's got to um, set up a school and hospital in this Himalayan village uh, where even like a, an order of brothers couldn't, couldn't make it work. And now she's got, she's got to do it. And um, as we're introduced and we see mm. kind of the skills in filmmaking that uh, Powell and Pressburger had um, in terms of visual storytelling, because then they go to the cafeteria and like, okay, I've assigned you sister Ruth and here's her, here's her deal. And, and so we get a good establishment of all those characters but from there, yeah, the story gets a little meandering because now we're encountering little episodes that explain their struggles in setting up this convent. Just little triumphs. For our main character, played by Deborah Kerr, it's it's always kind of relating to this past that she had in Ireland and, and kind of why she joined the convent to begin with. And those bits I actually liked because it, it, it feels like the... The, uh, the few times in which a, a movie can get to the internal life of somebody, and in this case they do it through mm-hmm. um, a lot of different flashbacks in, in terms of her, her old life, um, <laughs> this this life of luxury she had. It, it was very leisurely. Like she would go fishing with her 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 steady one. She would she would go fox hunting with him. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that and it is liked, it is but... kind of nice that it built to that moment. Because again, at, at, up until that point, I was wondering, why are we following this woman? Why do we find her interesting whatsoever? And then we do the flashback, and it's like, oh, okay, she does have an internal life. She does have a, a reason why she acts the way she does. But this is like an hour into the movie. It's like, goodness gracious, guys, pick up the pace. <laughs> yeah, it's so from here it gets a little disjointed because um, we're also introduced to like a, a very disparate characters. One is... Um, the woman who currently runs the structure, it's like an old um, castle in which there's like mm-hmm. erotic drawings on the wall. And, and, and it's run by uh, this, this old kooky woman who's supposed to be a native to this like area of the Himalayas, but is, is very clearly a, a, a woman doing a Cockney accent. Like, <laughs> Yeah. 
and she's and she's very sarcastic. She's mm-hmm. very she's always rolls her eyes whenever she's receiving orders, and she she's the only one to kind of like. I mean, she cooperates, but she's not very cooperative about it. Let's say, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, yeah, what her obligation. I don't think she's being paid or, like, what her obligation is, and yeah, again, yeah, and she, it's not a, and believe it or not, guys, it's not like the coven is the or the, co- uh, the convent. Co- it's not. Con- it's not a coven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's clear where Jonathan's feelings lie. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's gaggle of witches. <laughs> well, it's obviously you know. From the outset, we can tell like the preservation of their society is not very you know a top priority. <laughs> so it's not like you know why they keep them around. Besides, maybe translation purposes, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we're introduced to that character. But there, there's another key character, uh, Mr. Dean. And so this is originally what I thought the movie was going to focus on is not only like the the struggles that the women have uh, materially with setting up the school and hospital in this. A struggling location in the Himalayas, but also um, somewhat of their desire, because then you see this this very handsome man dressed always in short shorts and with an open shirt, um, oh, kind yes. of yeah. <laughs> and if you thought the uh, old lady was sarcastic, oh boy, this guy has some thoughts too. He wants you to know, <laughs> like that's what's kind of interesting. Like and again, the culture clash, like that is the kind of main purpose of the movie is again these culture clashes. You've got these, they arrive, and you know obviously the nuns are very. Uh, reserved and stayed and you know they 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 make their wishes known but obviously they're not going to be too forthright and then they're surrounded by those people it's like Ugh, fine whatever i'll do it screw you <laughs> but it's not a good idea <laughs> And again, like going back to the whole kind of like episodic notion of the movie, it just kind of like you get a lot of little vignettes of scenes that kind of play out just like that, but you don't really get the sense that the story's building any momentum. And I don't, is that my fault? Because again, I've been trained to kind of like think that, oh, it needs a three act structure. It needs to be this, that, and the other. It's like, it's 15 minutes. I mean, you haven't set in the, you know, proper uh, uh, conflict yet. What's going on? Well, maybe, and and maybe it's because I don't know they were shooting this on the fly, and and they didn't know exactly mm-hmm. what they were kind of like focusing on, because um, well, the other major character we haven't sent we haven't um, described yet is a uh, sister Ruth, and mm-hmm. she's the one she's the sister who struggles the most with this transition. Um, she doesn't know how to do the culture clash. She's obviously well intentioned, but kind of screws things up, and so um, even though we see kind of. Only, only slightly see the rises and falls in terms of their uh, efforts to set up the school and hospital. Like it, it's it's it only really comes to a piece in her. Um, I think what they were really focused on was production design. I think that was the kind of like main priority. <laughs> and if you research this movie, that's why this movie is remembered because they filmed this entirely on a soundstage in England. However, like 
kind of top uh using top flight matte paintings and technicolor like people were convinced like wow they actually went to the himalayas to film this and and i wanted to ask like what your impressions were 70 years later in high definition like do the effects like kind of hold up or do you feel like um they really did create this like immersive world um i do actually think they did a pretty good job Honestly, mm-hmm. I was pretty well fooled. There wasn't anything that stuck out to me that said like, oh, that's a matte painting or oh, that's a obviously a set. Um, and maybe it's because, again, like with modern eyes, I kind of give 1940s films a little bit more credit. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like looking for the fakery because obviously the, you know that there's already that artifice there. So I, I, I guess I could consider myself impressed on that aspect because nothing they did took me out of the film in terms of production design. Yeah, it is really impressive i the only moments in which i'm taken out of it is during those flashbacks and like a little the sister clouda's trips to like a, a a little pond for fishing or on a fox hunt they actually did use real locations in england and i'm like wow i can kind of spot the difference between that and a matte painting of the of the of the mm-hmm. mountains themselves and again you, again you could tell it's a painting because there's no life to it like you don't see wind you don't see the clouds moving you don't see birds you don't see like things like that so <laughs> i think they spliced in a bit of a uh, stock footage in there though like That's true. obviously yeah. a camera crew at some point went to the himalayas they just took no actors with them so yeah and so it's it's still like pretty impressive like i think if you if you were told like oh this was shot entirely in england you'd say wow i i can't believe that but um it depends cuz they don't really leave the convent until um and this one the main crux of the story comes in until they they screw up very badly they try to treat a child the sister ruth tries to treat a child and the child sadly like passes away um we're talking mm-hmm. about an infant here um and yeah. so that that's really what sets the rest of the story in motion but that doesn't come in until like at least an hour and 10 minutes in this hour and 40 minute film and it's interesting you told me that i did not realize that they were shooting on the fly and now i'm wondering Mm -hmm. why this is based on a novel did they not have a script (laughs) like what (laughs) well things things constantly change on a film production john sometimes actors get injured or sick or you know like uh i don't know uh, personalities clash and people get fired and uh, you you run short on budget or uh, i don't know stuff keeps happening okay so bah, <laughs> nuts to that I say. Yeah, but you you made a joke that this is like uh, Ari Aster's Midsummer, and it sort of becomes that because this this is really the catalyst for Sister Ruth like really uh, kind of renouncing her her commitment to the convent, mm-hmm. and uh, this this really I think demonstrates the skills of of um of Powell and Pressburger. Because um, Sister Cloud is like uh, entering the door, she hears some like rustling from like down the hall, like enters the room, and now you see uh, Sister Ruth like out of, out of her habit and everything, and the and the makeup. She's is in contemporary clothing. Dun, yes. dun, dun. <laughs> Was it not an effective moment though to see her? So. Yeah, she looks. Yeah, yeah, she looks quite fabulous. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the amazing thing. It's like it all finally comes together. Like when we're talking about performances, costume design, all these filmmaking things, like are finally coming together. Like I think in that first hour, like we're just getting the bits and pieces of it, like because it's nothing in the story has really coalesced to a moment like that. But it's well, it's. But here's the reason why it didn't really work for me. Again, mm-hmm. we've kind of been surrounded with these characters who kind of like roll their eyes at the nuns for instance mr dean and mr angu who or uh, mrs angu who like talk to these women you know kind of like condescend to them mm-hmm. and so as a result like i didn't really know how seriously we we're supposed to take the nuns and so this moment where she renounces her faith 
is supposed to be like a big deal, but also like she's been set up to be the most sensible one as well. Because everyone else is like <laughs> freaking out. They should know that a convent won't work here. Like just call it quits. And so like Ruth at this point is also kind of the smartest one because she's just like, yeah, I'm calling it quits. This is stupid. <laughs> John, how dare you? Okay, <laughs> Sister Claudia, God, God bless Deborah Kerr. Like she, she kind of like really internalizes and portray nothing. I think it's also the fact mm-hmm. that she does have this like very heavy, like tight costume on, in which like you can't like covers her face all the way up to like her chin, like you know can't yes. and isn't really portraying anything. And so like I, I think it's a it's good in contrast to the the actress who's playing Sister Ruth, like how how kind of straight and narrow and stoic uh, Sister Clauda is, and then you got Sister Ruth who's like losing it a little bit. There's another very effective shot. I think they're having like like a pretty mundane conversation about like the goings on at the convent, and Sister Ruth like bursts through the door like covered in like blood all over her white <laughs> white clothes, like saying like what? Yeah, I I tried my best to solve like solve the ble- uh, stop this bleeding, and nothing's happening. Or so yeah. And then Mr. Dean has to come in and help out a little bit. Or I can't remember the exact circumstance. That's a problem, I think, too, is the scenes are very repetitive. And like mm-hmm. they're, they're, because we're kind of locked in this one location, they're all taking place in either like the, the entrance room in which like there's tile art of, of, you know, women at the fountain, you know, getting... <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what's the other room? Like um, Sister Cloud's bedroom. Like they they all take place in the same room. And what the purpose of those yeah. scenes is not like clearly laid out or it's, it's, it's set at the pace of life, which... Um... <laughs> yeah. And then also the problem is the sisters are all dressed the same. So until you kind of I, start yeah. getting those kind of character moments, I, could, I couldn't even tell them apart half the time. <laughs> character like sister ruth you don't really need that because uh, another scene that i do appreciate like um i said earlier it's said at the pace of life which isn't exactly true but it's clear like um after at the, at the story moment in which um sister ruth like renounces her commitment to the convent it, it the story seems much more focused and becomes a horror film basically maybe not a horror film but a more conventional thriller in which exactly. like kind of the the stakes are set up and the action is very clear. In this case she goes like hey like uh, I I since I've thrown away this commitment I can finally get it on with uh, Mr. Dean. Um, the the very attractive like Mr. Dean. Mm-hmm. And so she like she like um climbs through this jungle and this and through this swamp until she finally arrives at his like hut. And uh actually it's way nicer than a hut. Um, he's his his I don't, I don't know his backstory is never really explained. Like he's he's clearly an adventurer or some kind of colonialist in the mold of 
out of like Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen. Um, so, I, and I don't know why he's still single. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, but um, in any event, there's that little moment in in which um, kind of her her he he kind of rebuffs her advances, and um, the <laughs> conflicts are more li- clearly laid out than they were earlier. And this is when, and this is and again, it's moments like these, like when there's also a great like point of view shot where she faints um so like those moments stand out because like all the stakes are like kind of clearly laid out all the, all the characters are well defined and now we finally kind of like understand what's going on like inside and outside their heads um which the first half <laughs> yes, of the movie doesn't really get at is it yeah. too little too late is no. it too little too late <laughs> no i'll answer that question and, right now. okay <laughs> all right i think it is and also it doesn't really pay off with the other half of the story which is you know the royalty uh, what was his deal? You know, he was like, oh, I want to be taught the by The shaman you. or the young general? Which one? <laughs> There's so the many young characters. general. Okay. I know. The young general. I want to be taught by you. Well, we only teach women. Please? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it pays off when um, a, another young, a, another unconventional student, let's call her, the slattern, you know, just <laughs> run, runs in and, and courts him. And so they run off together. And th- that's all the resolution you need, really. I mean, what else? I don't know what else you need to know, John. I mean... <sighs> I mean, you're. I guess, like, I just don't know what the theme is. I guess that's my biggest problem. Is like, what, yeah. like, it, I wouldn't mind the episodicness or the kind of like languid pace of the movie. It's like if I knew what the overall theme was, and is the theme like you know classic British stiff upper lipism? It's like no, stay, mm-hmm. stay to your convictions. It'll all work out fine. Or is it like, no, was Sister Ruth right? Or was, or is the truth somewhere in the middle? I don't know. <laughs> And maybe I'm a big fat dum dum. Like I don't know, is this movie pro tradition or anti tradition? I don't know. Because <laughs> on the one hand, it's like yes, it's like oh, the Catholics, you know, they're the they're the real kind of people who who have their own faith. But oh, these Himalayan people also have their own faith. Uh, do we mend the traditions? What happens? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe the book gets into that a little bit because I know the original author like grew up as a British colonialist in India and mm-hmm. took some of her personal experiences there and, and can maybe in words delve into a little bit deeper about those conflicts of like, Hey, we're trying to uh, spread our faith through service, but it's not working. Like we're butting up against cultures and traditions that we don't know anything about. Like, so I, maybe in words, like she can get, she can do those things that the movie can't really express. I thought it was still a, a worthwhile, like look at and, and like, people obviously like bumping up against uh, a nature and culture they don't understand and like how how exactly they they react to that mm-hmm. and, like how exactly they can kind of I don't, I don't, like buff up against that through through Deborah Kerr's I thought really good performance and also the the woman behind Sister Ruth I wish I could remember her name um I'm going to look it up right now um Kathleen, <laughs> Kathleen Byron um kind of Catherine Byron yeah. yes no, I so, won't deny that there's good performances, but it's like the wrapping paper around it as a whole. I just don't think the movie is really working. It's not really firing on all cylinders. You got you got a little a uh, little uh, donkey drawn carriage that's just kind of like clomping along, and it like <laughs> comes alive at the end. No doubt, the climax is is definitely worth it. But for me, too little, too late. I can only really recommend the climax. Watch the last fifteen minutes of this movie. Great. <laughs> Everything else, blah, a slog, a slog. <laughs> Yeah, so well, let's talk about that climax a little bit. Like again, this is where like things come into focus. Like we clearly have our all our chess pieces set up, and we know how we want the game to be played out. And so from here, Sister Ruth has, after being rebuffed by Mister Dean, has kind of lost her mind, and uh, now decides like I'm going to take out revenge on poor Sister Clouda. Um, 
as we said up earlier, she she rings the bell every so often at the at the precipice of this enormous cliff in the Himalayas, um, <laughs> and she decides I'm just going to push her off that, uh, <laughs> and and via the a very traditional climax, it's like oh no, I'm going to lead off. Um, she Sister Ruth falls to her death. The convent does ultimately dissolve, and um, I, I I don't know. I like I still think there's this there's this sentimentality and sweetness at the end because. Uh, that Mr. Dean was like, I, I still admire your efforts, even if like ultimately they they didn't come to fruition. And then like, uh, oh, I I gave you a chance until the rains came. You know, they part ways, and then the rain actually does like arrive. So come on, yes. like, come on, like, can't just, uh, and that is a yes, nice scene it, to end on with him weird? just in the rain and the what going yeah. down his face. That's that's a good ending scene. Yeah. Yes. Was that weird that it t- took place after about a 15 minute horror <laughs> uh, horror slash thriller <laughs> sequence? <laughs> And before that, just a conventional drama about nuns trying to set up a, a school and hospital in in a in an unknown land. I I don't know, but um, I I got still got to say it worked for me, um, even though as you said, it's a little rough around the edges and and needs like little little tweaks here and there, or or not something that you would say like is is conventionally entertaining for an audience seventy years later. I, but I mean, if it were more, I think obtuse and artful, maybe I would have kind of given it that uh given it a little more credit but because i was like oh this is a set narrative this is a story we are telling again it's not like stalker where it's like people are talking in generalities and like philosophizing to each other if it were more that i would have given it more credit but because it's like this is a story these are the themes we're building off of uh, and then it just kind of like collapses (laughs) under its own weight because of that i i I can't give the movie too much credit and i cannot recommend it my verdict is spoken boom (laughs) done (laughs) maybe yeah, maybe that's where you're right. Maybe that's where the movie falls down is really elucidating those themes. Because obviously, if you're going to compare it to two other classic Criterion collection movies that we've looked at on this podcast before, The Seventh mm-hmm. Seal and Stalker, which are two movies which have nothing to do with this. This is a very unfair comparison. <laughs> but at the very least, those movies have scenes where that elucidate themes and, and kind of explain like what the, what the story's getting at. Here, it's much more withholding. Like Deborah Kerr doesn't really Deborah Kerr's character doesn't really like talk in those big grand general ideas. Neither does Sister Ruth or Mr. Dean or anybody else really. And as you said, it doesn't deal with like the day to day, or at least it's not really communicating in the in the kind of day to day drudgery of what they're setting out to accomplish. I mean, we only get these little like peaks of of uh, emotion or, or circumstance in which like oh like how do we how do we talk to um or do we admit this general or into our school do we how do we um heal this child so stuff like that like isn't really well explained so you're right it the movie falls down in that aspect i still think overall it's a good like entertainment and and i i do like those sequences at the very end those last 15 minutes or so I'm, i mean i'm not gonna lie the climax is obviously the best part of the movie but yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't. I can't recommend. Well, as we, as we see in this podcast, doesn't that help? Doesn't that solve a lot? As we see on this podcast, doesn't that? Can't that take? Can't that like really rocket a movie off into the classic status or not? <laughs> um, I mean, we've we've talked about this in the past. Is like yes, we like the climax. Yes, tends to be the best remembered part, and it tends to yes elevate movies to classic status. But then for our our purpose here is to adjudicate and say like yay thumbs up or yeah. nay thumbs down copyright Ebert 2012 um i say yeah. no i say i say thumbs down good sir i say cast it to hell okay. destroy it <laughs> <laughs> send it off a cliff in the himalayas and i don't know there what to do go. with the yes. remains so. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, what did they do with Sister Ruth's bones are still there today. I know they they said what should we do with her remains or whether they're taking them back to Ireland or whatever. I I can't remember, but who cares? Anyway, uh, <laughs> I do yeah. <laughs> I I was going to ask if this um has uh, motivated you to look at any more Powell or Pressburger movies, but uh, it doesn't sound like it has. Like the life and death. Well, of again, I had no something. idea who they were until we saw this movie, and I, I guess I should like look into their history a little bit more. I mean, what else have they done that you think has kind of earned their well, titles gonna... as like as art house kingmakers? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I'm going to motivate you with one. I I only know of Michael Powell because he had um after their partnership dissolved, he he tried to do a very interesting movie called Peeping Tom. Um, so this mm. movie came out in 1960, the same year as Psycho. No, you've seen Psycho, you know that it's a a movie about voyeurism and and um, kind of target uh, in particular like uh how we, the male gaze on women. And everybody said, oh Alfred Hitchcock, brilliant, you're great, we mm. love you. Michael Powell tried to do a very similar movie with Peeping Tom. It's about a serial killer who um lures women in with the prospect of like film stardom and photography but he attaches like this blade this weapon at the end of it um so again dealing with the same themes of of voyeurism and the male gaze and stuff like that and everyone said gross terrible michael powell awful what are you doing (laughs) it's like exploring get out of here (laughs) well again that's the difference between american and british sensibilities i I suppose i mean even though alfred hitchcock was a brit as well he was clearly making it for an american audience and american audience gobbled it up (laughs) that's true yeah Maybe yeah, maybe that's the difference. Like the the different cultures in the special relationship between the U.S. and the mm. U.K. I don't know. But... <laughs> All right, well, I'll have to look that one up then. Yeah, I mean, that's another worthwhile one to to see. Uh, Peeping Tom, but gosh, I yeah, that's the thing. It was so poorly received at its time, and is now seen as like um, maybe not a classic, but like bold in in terms of its vision of what it was doing back in 1960. The same way Psycho was, but. Psycho was hailed like immediately as a, as a great film, whereas this one wasn't. So I mean, if we can go off, if a if a man's career can be defined by the titles of which the movies he directed, then who this man's this man's doing really well. He's got Peeping Tom, he's got Honeymoon, he's got O Ellipses Rosalina, <laughs> um, Tales of Hoffman, The Fighting Pimpernel. I know where I'm going! <laughs> Exclamation point! Wow, just, just classic. Oh, he did the Thief of Baghdad. Okay, I've heard of that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, okay. Wait, they did Wait, Thief oh, of Baghdad. Shit. The Thief of Baghdad has like four, five director's credits. That's really interesting. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Six, six credits. Three are credited. <laughs> Three are uncredited. Right. <laughs> interesting. A lot of Let's, units yeah. on the Thief of Baghdad, apparently. <laughs> Okay, let's figure all this out on our own time, John. Let's not waste our, our listeners' precious. No, no, we got nothing else going on. Let's do. Let's <laughs> yeah, figure let's this just, out now. Yeah, let's just start <laughs> scrounging Wikipedia or something. See what we come up with. <laughs> I hope I hope you people like typing noises. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, if you don't want us to look up the Thief of Baghdad and all its uh, its uh, fabulous trivia, then what do you suggest we do? What? How could we spend our our time on this podcast? Well, let's. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Like in the event that we don't like a film, we do actually want to talk about something that we do wholeheartedly recommend, and it's a subject of mm-hmm. uh, how we end every episode, and that's the segment Spotlight. 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 Stinky. John, I've got a whole unit for you. I've got a comparative analysis here, only because right. I've seen this movie recently on Netflix. Um, first, I want to talk about uh, Chernobyl. I think I've talked about it. 
prior. Not the event itself, but the HBO <laughs> miniseries that came out last year. <laughs> wow, Greg's on top of it. I just yes. saw Heat. I want to talk about it now. Well, I've, I want to talk about it in light of another uh, somewhat recent release. It's, it's also a few years old. But these, <laughs> these two things, I'm sorry, these two things do... Uh, favorite compare or er, uh, do warrant some comparison, all right? If so, if all you'll right. allow me, please. Ugh, fine, go. <laughs> so Chernobyl, uh, uh, not the event itself, but the HBO miniseries that came out. Um, obviously, like a very gripping, uh, dark, like kind of recounting of this this awful event in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to compare it to uh, another film, uh, another English-American co-production uh, that looked at a moment in Soviet history, and it's available on Netflix right now, The Death of Stalin. Ah, yes. I'm familiar with this movie. Yeah. And so, John, on the surface, you think these movies are completely different, am I right? Um, <laughs> well, not really. They're both based in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they they handle ma- the material completely differently, whereas, you know, uh, uh, Chernobyl is a dark, gripping drama Um Kind of like, um, oh really? I was laughing the whole time. Was I not? <laughs> was I not meant to do that? <laughs> I was like, look at their stupid costumes. Look at all those dumb boils on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, apparently you were supposed to do that in the Death of Stalin. Um, oh, saying, okay. Yes, <laughs> because they take the the palace intrigue uh, following Stalin's demise and and the the uh, eventual uh, ascension of Nikita Khrushchev uh, to the to the top position at the in the USSR um it's it's really played for laughs it's like oh look at these like dumb goofballs um <laughs> so even though they kind of the tone and the approach to these two different events in Soviet history are are very very different i found they're doing the exact same thing and that is to basically comfort uk and american audiences that like don't worry we we won the cold war we're fine look at these incompetent boobs and how terrible they were but us we're good thumbs up yes. to us <laughs> look at how dysfunctional their government is our governments are fine <laughs> yeah yeah and so even though they're even though they're doing completely different things in terms of tone i i think they are trying to do the same thing. They they both serve the same purpose, which is that like, hey, like we won the Cold War, we're awesome. Look at these Soviet goofballs. But I find um, the death of Stalin may maybe be a little bit more annoying mm-hmm. um, in terms of it, it. It might be a little bit more effective in in kind of conveying that message, but it's also a little bit more annoying because it is through the voice of Armando Iannucci, uh, a guy who I don't generally like. I don't know what, how you feel about him. Um, I've seen in the loop. And I thought it was fine. I didn't love it, and but I can totally understand you thinking it's grating because it is kind of like overwhelming. Just the the sheer. It's, you know, it's like Veep was a very popular show, but for me it was like it was just just too resoundingly negative. It's like, can we have one line of dialogue that isn't meant to be an insult to another one? <laughs> like, it's like, come on, it's 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 kind of overbearing. Yeah, exactly. And so. I was going to say, to be fair to Aaron Sorkin, everybody leverages the same criticism about him. Like, oh, every character sounds the same. They have the perfect rejoinder. And I'm like, wait a minute, have you not seen... How how can you say that about Aaron Sorkin and yet not say that about Veep and In the Loop and In the Death of Stalin, where everybody has, like, the perfect insult, like, right away for the next person. And everybody sounds exactly the same, and they're all speaking the same, like, you know, uh, let me guess, you're you're a fat idiot. (laughs) Screw you. (laughs) Well, I think it, I think it has something to do with like kind of the underdog status that he still kind of has, whereas like Aaron Sorkin's obviously playing to like Oscar bait, yeah. so it's like he's easier to kind of make fun of. <laughs> well, Oscar Oscar bait also like a multi-time Emmy Award winner, yeah. Whereas you're right, Amandine Iannucci is is also the the tone 
of saying Aaron Sorkin pieces to elevate, like, say, the office of the president or our institutions mm. or the troops, most importantly. It's got to be the troops. It's now, always about respecting the troops. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, like, uh, Iannucci's aim is obviously to denigrate leadership and, and um, you know, kind of uh, take the mickey out of, like, people like Nikita Khrushchev or the people in the UK or US, like, le- levers of power. So I, I kind of understand that. It felt a little bit different when it is about the the Soviet Union because I don't know it was effective in those first few scenes like um they pull in a lot of like fun little trivia not fun because um <laughs> uh the people are obviously like getting liquidated and sent to gulags but like um I I do love the opening scene of the death of Stalin where um Stalin wants a recording of the night's performance, but they obviously didn't, never hit a record button, so they have to get every all these people back in. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see Patty Considine being very harried, and and he's butting up against uh, Olga Kirilenko, who's like uh, who's a, a, a piano player, but also part of the hashtag resistance against uh, Stalin, and and refuses to do it without some like special dispensation. So, so I like that, but yeah, it just, it just becomes overbearing, and and. It, particularly once once we get do get to the state funeral of Stalin, I was like getting bored. But it it finally comes alive once the death of Stalin does become, I'd say, as serious as Chernobyl does, and that is the <laughs> once once the 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 council that's now leading the USSR finally gets rid of one of history's greatest monsters, a guy as bad as Stalin was, and this guy Beria. Once they once they do finally um, kind of remove him from from power as well um he doesn't go naturally like stalin does but like that's that's when the movie came alive again so it does have this like high point there but it's only like once we finally remove this veneer of um armando <laughs> nianucci and just insult comedy back and forth and back and forth and back and forth uh, that it does reach the heights of say like that chernobyl also has so i i don't know i i, I just wanted to do a little comparative analysis and so that um yeah, basically, uh, these these two different films, even though they're they're wildly disparate, are uh, manufacturing consent and, and trying to um, <laughs> propagandize you that uh, <laughs> that the Soviet Union was bad, and uh, any other approach that uh, to our capitalist system is bad. So exactly, and how they're yeah. always lying to their people and lying to us. They're just a bunch of liars. Like yes. you know, they're all a bunch of buffoons. Mm-hmm. You can trust us though. We're fine. Everything's yes, fine. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they also have that new show on IMDb TV, Alex Ryder, and it's kind of the same thing where it's like, oh, those nasty Russians, what are they doing? <laughs> well, because those, those were designed, they're based on a series of books that was or that was supposed to be James Bond for kids. Yeah, and of course James Bond is a Cold War, Cold War, Cold Warrior. So, <laughs> well, it's also like they they like they. Do they blame them for like Brexit more than we blame them for Donald Trump? Is that it? Or well, that, yeah, that's the other thing too. Is cause apparently like um, th- to sow discord in the EU, uh, Russia did some awful propaganda to uh, <laughs> to uh, get people to vote in favor of leaving the EU. And some people will point out, like, well, why why was that attitude there to begin with? Just because I don't know, like Russia told the truth in terms of how how bad and how little like <laughs> how people get out of this uh, this European a country Union, but... meddling in the affairs of another sovereign country. <gasps> shut yeah. the thought. The very yeah, no, shut the, the thought, very yeah. idea. Yeah, and obviously, well, the US wait, Great UK... Britain, we won't stand for it. Yeah, exactly. What's the movie we watched again? Black Narcissus? Where where were they? It doesn't matter. Um, but not important. Yeah, and also not important. I'm sure the U.S. and U.K. had no had no influence or bearing on Boris Yeltsin becoming the president of a of a post Soviet Union Russia. I'm sure they didn't mind it at all. So. Mm-hmm.
It's funny. It's fun. It's great how things work out um, for America and UK. But yes, I, I don't want this to become another a, a socialist screed um, against our. <laughs> I mean, that's how our, all all our episodes tend to end. So. Yes. Yes. And, and particularly against um, two products that, while entertaining, are also useless. Like uh, the death of Stalin and Chernobyl are good, like entertainment still. Um, but I, I just find it interesting how they're trying to manufacture consent and 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 prop- propagandize to us, which, as we said, is is a no go. It's very, it's especially bad when Russia does it. But I'd I'd say bad overall in general. But there you go. Yeah, still solid entertainments, but. Well, it's it's ironic that you had two different things you kind of wanted to spotlight because I too have two different things that I want to compare and contrast. And also, it it, it comparing and contrasting them talks a lot a bit about a, a perspective. Let's say. Okay. Um, I finally caught up on the vow, and also Showtime's attempt to uh, copy them with seduced inside the cult of Nixium. Uh, you have to you have to pronounce it that way because there's no vowels. There might be an I in it. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea how to pronounce it. Like Nixium, I thought that was a drug. Is it? Wasn't it? Or, well, that's the thing. It's like everything about this cult. It is a cult. Uh-huh. But everything about it was like corporate leadership. So everything is an acronym. Everything is like kind of wrapped around the pseudoscience, like corporate speak. Mm-hmm. Like the like the sex cult that obviously garnered all the headlines. That was called DOS, which is like an acronym for like some kind of like. Um, uh, Latin phrase, and again, everything about this like big organization was kind of like wrapped in these kind of like synergy and you know energy and like always kind of like using all these acronyms and and well, that was my understanding is it started out as a multi-level marketing scheme basically. Well, yes, and that's the thing, and that's the problem with both the documentaries. I wish that they brought up the fact that this uh, the guy um, McNeary who kind of formed this thing, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Ranieri, that's it. Mm-hmm. Kevin Ranieri, like, I wish they both had brought up the fact earlier that he started his career in multi-level marketing. Like, having known that ahead of time would have been much more, like, kind of given everyone a much clearer picture. And that's kind of the weird thing about comparing and contrasting him, because the vow is a very slow burn. It's mm-hmm. very much, it's from the perspective of people who used to be in the cult. It's by the director of What the Bleep Do We Know. So he's, like, he's, a, he's an experienced filmmaker, and he was in this cult for, like, almost a decade you know, following this guy around and like just filming everything. And part of the criticism against the vow, but I actually think it's kind of interesting is that they think it's kind of like working too hard to let him off the hook where he's like, you know, like, well, it's, it's funny because like, if we can compare and contrast it to another recent, you know, head to head battle of the documentaries, it's like the fire festival ones where it's like the fire festival documentary from netflix was actually done by jerry media the people who promoted um, (laughs) fire festival so is it like is it really that is it really fair for them to do that can they really use an objective eye and look back and like give us all the real truths or is this just pr spin for you and some people are kind of making the argument for that with the vow is like oh this is just his excuse to like kind of atone for his sins for like supporting this guy for so long even though he had no idea about what the sex cult was happening like obviously he kept that under wraps as best he could basically what he was doing was he was like again multi-level marketing he was telling these women you need to find your own like slaves you know this is a master slave relationship and you need to get them to you know lose weight and you know have sex with me (laughs) so it's like (laughs) again it was like it's i wish that both these documentaries kind of brought up the fact although seduced to its credit i don't know if this is like to its credit but again comparing and contrasting them 
seduced is not a slow burn. It literally starts, it's like, this is a cult, this is a cult, this guy's dangerous, this guy's bad. <laughs> um, and so everyone's kind of like, from reading all the criticism, everyone's like, oh, seduced is the superior series. And I don't know, I found the vow more interesting because, again, it's like, it has a perspective, it has a point of view, and it's just a better, well-done documentary because, again, it's by documentarians. And, you know, they're like, it's very kind of like artistic and it has a point of view as opposed to like seduced, which is you know, this week on seduced yeah. American greed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like the same thing with the dueling fire festival documentaries. Like one, one is trying to be tasteful yeah. and award-winning. And as you said, like may have some behind the scenes stuff in which there's a reason for that taste. And it's motivated out of like trying to elevate yourself and, and the material or something. Whereas, <laughs> I uh, like which which do you want out of the story that's uh, we should probably explain like this is what I learned in, in film school when I was doing my film studies like documentaries are not truth in, mm. or facts in the way you think of it. it is a creative interpretation of events or truth yeah and so like it which way do you prefer when you look at this like I whether it be the goofiness of fire festival or the severe criminality going on behind Nixium like which is it? what kind of which way do you want the story told and it sounds mm-hmm. like this is another study in contrast and the same story being told two different vastly different ways yeah and again it's like it's frustrating because like again just like fire festival is like there's no moment that contradicts the other one like they are mm-hmm. telling the exact same facts but again the presentation is completely different and it's funny like the seduced one is getting a lot more kind of like praise for its kind of like straightforward style and again it's like browbeating you over the head and kind of demonstrating how dangerous this man truly was but mm-hmm. i thought personally i mean the vow is not perfect i think it's like one of the big criticisms about the vow is it's way too baggy and it's way too cliffhanger it's like obsessed with its cliffhangers yeah. um and like the it was kind of a surprise when it's like oh we're getting a season two well it's because the last episode is like teasing you we got kevin mcneer or Ranieri on the phone dun 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 <laughs> <laughs> so it's like look forward to that interview next season so. I, oh, great! Yeah, don't, yeah. So, oh, great! We need to hear I, more about from this fucking asshole. <laughs> yes, I also refuse to be blue balled like that. Don't. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is. It is kind of interesting because it's like if you listen to this guy talk for more than five minutes, it's like this guy's completely full of shit. <laughs> I don't know how. It, like, but again, like that's what also kind of makes the vow interesting. Is like anyone can fall for a cult. Like, look yeah. at fucking Donald Trump. Like, you know, reality doesn't really matter if your emotions are kind of getting in the way. So mm-hmm. I guess because of the vow kind of puts that a little bit more front and center, even though obviously uh, Seduced has its own kind of subject it follows. It's the girl named India. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the vow kind of has a much more kind of like stronger point of view and just has more compelling filmmaking behind it. So if I had to pick between the two, which I feel kind of bad about, because I do kind of understand the criticism for both, but oh okay, I've... yeah. Wait, so which one did you come down on? Is it the I, vow or seduced? I think the vow is slightly more compelling television. Okay. If you if you just kind of want to like get the facts, ma'am, then we could go with seduced. All right. Yeah. Okay. So again, you're gonna blue ball us and go straight down the middle and not and not come down damn it john if greg there are no easy answers in life okay <laughs> no i demand easy answers i demand black and white i demand one side or the other so what, what's it going to be <laughs> don't make me choose i don't want to get canceled again i've already been canceled so many times yeah the answer is obviously uh fire fraud that is the one tomorrow. <laughs> okay uh, 
just because that that title just rolls off the tongue. Fire I mean, it's frog. pretty it's pretty short. You're not losing anything by watching it. So <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, well, Greg, in the on, in honor of choices, yeah. I think it's time to throw at you trivia challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a simple one, Greg. Uh, we're playing a simple round of name that movie. Okay. I've got seven I'm... questions for you. You're gonna have to name the movie. Got it? Okay. I'm feeling. I'm feeling very good. Now, wait. What's the parameter? I because I can name seven movies for you right here. Uh, there's three ninjas. Uh, three ninjas <laughs> kick back. Three ninjas <laughs> knuckle up. And three ninjas at, at magic at high mountain. That's of uh, course that's four those right are, there. If you want me to name the three four more, movies, we always have at the top of our heads. Absolutely. Yes. But no, these are seven movies. There's no connection between them. They're completely random. You, you won't find any thread between them, so let's just get into it. Okay. Okay. Question the first. Francis Lawrence and Jennifer Lawrence have collaborated together on four different movies, three of which were part of the Hunger Games series. Yeah. Name the fourth movie. This one, I <laughs> I know because I'm interested in seeing it, because uh, it's actually based on a graphic novel. It's called Red Sparrow. Mm, correct. Good job. Good yeah. work. Yeah. Came out in March, the same time as the other like Hunger Games movies came out, and it just kind of it came like a fart in the wind like nobody really didn't get great reviews so yeah it's kind of a well shame, the joke but... was also like isn't this just black widow this is just black widow isn't it because i, I guess it's a, yeah. it's a russian ballerina spy like that's yeah. you know her whole backstory as well so okay. maybe they just couldn't sell that to marvel or something <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> all right question yeah. number two the title of this movie and the anthony burgess novel at which it's based is taken mm -hmm. from east london slang name the movie a Clockwork Orange, obviously, ah, because I, I can't think of any other Anthony Burgess <laughs> novels, to be honest. Greg, come on. He's like, you know, it's like Stephen King and then Anthony Burgess. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah clearly. <laughs> All right. Question number three. An animated film typically takes four years to make. Director George Dunning only had 11 months to finish this film. Name the movie. D Director George Dunning, huh? Mm -hmm. um, and if you couldn't tell by the clue, it is animated, so. Well, I uh, thank you. That really narrows it down. Um, so it could it could be for all I know it could be one of the many Alpha and Omega movies um, that currently populate Netflix, uh, or it could be it's certainly not the Thief of Baghdad. Or sorry, not Thief of Baghdad. Again, I'm thinking about that with Powell and Pressburger. Um, mm -hmm. That was a different guy. So I'm gonna go with. So it's got to be quick, and I'm gonna go with the movie Ants. Sorry, it was the 1968 film Yellow Submarine. Yellow okay. Submarine. Yes. All right. All right. All right. So now, I, now I'm getting a theme here. <laughs> oh, are you? Are you, are oh, you yeah. picking up on it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Question number four. John Ford is an accomplished director who has won four Academy Awards for Best Directing. Mm -hmm. He won for this movie, which he considered his favorite. Name the movie. All right, his favorite. Um, the th the theme is obviously uh, fruit. So. Um, <laughs> Which movies of his add fruit in the title? Uh, shoot. I, well, going off that theme, the, the best I can think of is uh, Red River with uh, John Wayne. Is it Red River? Ooh, I'm sorry. It was the 1942 film How Green Was My Valley. Okay. Oh, that's right. That Yeah, that beat out um, Citizen Kane for Best Picture. Um, mm. The jury's still out on which movie's better, but... Uh, <laughs> Scholars are still divided. Yeah. Um, question number five. This Palme d'Or winner awarded the Golden Lion to not only the director, but also two actors in the film. Name the movie. 
Okay, so it won the Palme d'Or and the Golden Lion of Venice. Oh, I'm sorry. I I I I totally screwed that up. No, it yeah. did not win the Golden Lion. It it won the Palme d'Or. Just the Palme d'Or. Okay, won the Palme d'Or, and it it awarded it to its actors as well, which typically does not happen. It usually does that to just the director. Okay, so now I got to go through Palme d'Or winners <laughs> that um, again have fruit in the title. Um, oh, shoot. And I know, like, Hirokazu Kureda always gets the, the nominated for award every year. Um, the Dardan brothers have won multiple Palme d'Ors, um, but none of their movies have an actual color in them. Sorry, color? What, where, where, where did I get that idea? Um, <laughs> Greg, these are completely poked at, picked at random. You know this. <laughs> yes, I know. You're right. Um, ugh, shoot, I'm stuck. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to go with uh, another Palme d'Or winner that I do know. Pulp Fiction. Is it Pulp Fiction? <laughs> Sadly, no. Pulp is not, an, is not a color, Greg, as much okay. as you want it to be. Yeah. The answer was blue is the warmest color. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Ugh. And I think it was awarded to the actors because apparently he's like an abusive asshole, the director. Of oh, yes I, yes. I can't even begin to pronounce his name. They mm-hmm. shot the sex scene over like 10 days. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I, <laughs> what a I nightmare know, that film must have been. Yes. God, God bless Leah Sadow and um, mm-hmm. the other actress. But in, in any event, okay. All right. All right. I'm, fall, I'm falling off the wagon. I'm, no, yeah. You're I'm, not I'm doing it. It only gets harder from here, Greg. Oh, boy. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> this Michelle Gondry movie was mm-hmm. originally titled Le Crome des Jeux, which translates to The Foam of the Days. But obviously, it changed its name to This Jazz Standard. Name the movie. Oh, jazz Standard. Shoot. Um, because my mind immediately went to the Blue Danube, but that's not a jazz standard, is it? Um, nor has any movie been named that. Um, okay, so, uh, dang it, I, I think I know what the, shoot, what movie did the year come out? 2013. 2013, okay, so th- no way did I know this. Um, I'm going to go with, um, The Green Hornet. <laughs> so close, it was Mood Indigo, Mood Indigo. Mood Indigo, okay. By Duke Ellington. Okay. Okay. All right. Final question, Greg. You're yep. you're not gonna make it up, so it's like just you just quit now. Honestly. <laughs> okay. Shirsa Ronan is a household mm. name now, but back in her early career, she was pigeonholed as playing teenage assassins. For instance, she starred in <laughs> Hannah and also this 2011 film. Name the movie. Okay. Well, again, I put together a little theme here. So it obviously has the word violet in it. Um, <laughs> however, my my brain uh, is, is kind of reaching for a title with violet and coming up with nothing. So I'm going to go with um, Violet the Killer. No. It was Violet and Daisy. Violet and a Daisy, movie okay. no one's ever heard of. All right. <laughs> Don't feel Great. bad. All right. Oh, that was rough, Greg. You got you got two out of seven. That's not yeah. good. <laughs> no. You suck. But hey, for a completely random category which had no theme, no structure, or anything to it, I think I think I did pretty well. Yeah, you did actually. Yeah, I'm 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 really impressed. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I think Michelle Gondry had a movie that starred Gail Garcia Bernal called like The Color of Dreams. I'm gonna go look that up right now. Oh yeah, he did have. Yeah, yeah I remember him having yeah. a, a movie with. It had like you know papercraft. Yes, stuff. yes. I remember that. Yeah. Has he done anything in a while? What's What's Michelle Gondry up to? Uh, since that, he's only directed one other film called Micro- Microbe and Gasoline. So, mm. um, I, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. It was called The Science of Sleep is what I was thinking of. Ah, okay. Not even yeah. close. Good job. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. You know what? Next time I'm going to be coming with fire. All right. Okay. You are... <laughs>
I keep reading. I, I there's this tweet I saw a little while ago, one like saying like kind of just musing on what directors are up to while they're stuck in quarantine, yeah. and them being like, Steven Soderbergh is just gonna blow everyone's fucking minds, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. give me a break. <laughs> I gotta say that he's he's running out of time here. Like he's gotta come on. Like let's hurry up. If he can shoot movies on an iPhone, I mean, what's what's preventing him from say like. I don't know, just filming inside on a very with a very small crew or by himself. Like I don't understand like why. That's an excellent point. I, yeah. Again, like he hasn't blown our minds yet with some kind of like weird cinematography masterpiece. So come on. Yep. If you're ever feeling unproductive in quarantine, don't blame yourself. Steven Soderbergh hasn't done shit. So I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if anything, don't don't blame yourself. Anything regarding these circumstances. Like obviously we're all going through something difficult. So yeah, don't. Don't don't get any more down. If don't like, beat oh, yourself I, up. Don't beat yeah. yourself up. Yeah. If oh I haven't been productive or oh I haven't done that sourdough loaf or whatever. Who cares? All right. Yeah. Let other people worry about that. You you do you. All right. During this time. Exactly. I don't care if you've you've lost weight or gained weight or done anything. Just nav- let's navigate these waters together. It doesn't matter if you're you're water skiing over them. <laughs> just <laughs> just let's get to shore safely. Okay. Exactly. We'll worry about style points later. Yes, and if you want to take credit for anything you have done in quarantine, I've got the perfect place you can do it. Social media. And hey, while you're there, why don't you follow our social media pages? Why not? I, hey, share those uh, quarantine uh, activities and stuff with us on social media. Um, it's not really appropriate. It's not really the venue for it. But um, <laughs> Hey, this is a like-for-like like situation, okay? Hashtag like-for-like. Like. All right, you follow us, yes. we'll follow you. We're going to have just a just a one-for-one perfect ratio. 10,000 followers to 10,000 <laughs> subscribers. It's going to be great. Yeah. That's a, ask anybody. That's the way to do it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, we're also, we got an email, uh, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. If you don't want to share stuff publicly, if you want to be a little bit more discreet or private about that, um, you can uh, send us movie recommendations there, questions that we'll answer on air, and... Uh, I don't know if anything else that's uh, crossed your mind. We're pretty open. We're good listeners, too. So, mm-hmm. And if you've got recommendations for movies you think we should check out for the podcast, send them our way. I mean, yeah. after that brilliant discussion of Black and Narcissus, like, obviously, you can tell we need <laughs> movies to, to, to watch. So We sure do. <laughs> Speaking of which, we need to figure out what we're watching next week. Well, John, we're delving back into the Criterion Collection here. Mm. And if you, if you felt like uh, Black Narcissus, oh, a little a little thin, right? I mean, you're just going to give me one movie every two weeks. Well, we're coming back with fire. We're coming back with three movies. Oh yeah. Right? I think it's I think it's about time we catch up on on some really deep art house fare. I'm talking uh, Christoph Kowalski's um, <laughs> Three Colors trilogy. That's right. We're going to be watching Blue, White, and Red. Ooh, more colors. Yeah. I love colors. Ooh, this is so much fun. Yes. <laughs> so you'll. John, you'll get you'll get uh, your fill of the tree color, and uh, you'll see if uh, France is really a place worth living. Uh, with three very disparate uh, visions. <laughs> um, so, what what unites these movies? Is it is it theme? Is it location? What can uh, it's actors? Ah, so it's it's well, it is it's cast and crew. Basically, he got the money to do three different movies, um, and centered around three teams that the the, uh, the motto of France, like Egalité, Fraternité. Um, I can't mm-hmm. remember the third one, but. Yeah, um, and they're, so they're three different genres, with, but with all the same actors and cast, or excuse me, uh, all the same actors, basically playing different characters, though. So, uh-huh. so it's not a before midnight sunset situation. They're, no, they're meant to be different people. Okay. Yes. Yes. When's and the American remake? Where's the red, white, and blue? <laughs> 
Uh, that's a great question, John. Uh, it, well, it depends. Like um, <laughs> once uh, American exhibits any kind of equality or fraternity, um, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I want to see one movie set at you know the coastal elite cities, and then one set in rural America, and then yes. maybe one set in the border. Who knows? What is America? Let's find out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's find out. Well, I've, one thing we'll we'll definitely learn with Francis next week or next time uh, we we talk to you guys. So um, until then, thank you everybody for listening. Yes, and until next time, keep aspiring. Through a little, oh, through a little French shoes on there. I thank you for explaining because I, I have no idea what you're going for. <laughs> oh come on, that was great. That was perfect. <laughs>